Our text this evening is from the book of Matthew, Matthew's Gospel, chapter 2, Matthew chapter 2, beginning at verse 1. Title in my book says, in my uh, copy of the Bible says, The Visit of the Wise Men. Hear God's word. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. From you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. Behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. Being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, They departed to their own country by another way. So verse 10 of this text tells us that when the wise men saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. They weren't just joyful. They weren't just happy and excited. Human words struggle to describe the intensity of their emotion at finally arriving at the house of the Christ child. They rejoiced exceedingly. Their joy was not simply great, but exceedingly great. And this joy was not unique to the wise men. Joy shows up again and again throughout the Christmas story. This this joy begins even in the Old Testament prophecies concerning the coming of Christ. In Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, um, we know that verse, but prior to that verse, in the context is verse 3, which says, you have multiplied the nation, you have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest. And then going down to verse 6, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given. Zechariah 9 verse 9 says, rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation as he. The Lord Jesus said concerning Abraham, your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. Luke 10 verse 24, for I tell you that many prophets and kings desired to see what you see. The believers of the Old Testament, they longed for the coming of Jesus. And talking about these Old Testament saints, Hebrews 11 3, 13 tells us these all died in faith not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar. What joy they 
would have felt and manifested if they could have seen Jesus in the flesh. What joy they have now to be in the presence of the risen and ascended Jesus Christ. And this rejoicing continues in the New Testament virtually every turn in the account of Jesus' birth. When Christ came into the world, it seems that heaven and earth together were filled with joy. John the Baptist, we are told, leaped for joy in his mother's womb. Mary sang in Luke chapter 1, verses 46 and 47, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. The tongue of Zechariah was loosed, and immediately he exclaimed, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people, and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. Simeon took the Christ child in his arms, and praising God, said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation. Angels appearing to the shepherds on the outskirts of Jerusalem on the night of Jesus' birth burst out into praise, glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. The shepherds, upon hearing of his birth, we're not, we're not told specifically that their hearts were full of joy, but it appears to be in apparent excitement that they said to one another, let us go over to Jerusalem and see this thing that has happened which the Lord has made known to us. We read concerning Anna, and coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all those who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. So why all of this excitement? Why did the wise men rejoice exceedingly with great joy when they arrived and could finally see the Christ? After all, if you think about it, at that point in time, Jesus was only a child. And on top of that, he looked like an ordinary child. He was an ordinary child from just a human point of view. There was nothing about how he looked that would have drawn your attention to him. In fact, there was nothing about the baby Jesus that would seem to explain this great joy. He was born of a poor woman. His parents, Joseph and Mary, though descendants of David, they were nobodies as far as society was concerned. So what is this joy all about? Why were these wise men rejoicing with exceedingly great joy to see Jesus? The reason is because the child, this child that was with his mother Mary there in this house, was the Messiah, the promised Savior. All of these people were excited about Jesus' birth because he knew he was their Savior. They knew he was not just an ordinary child. They knew he was more than just a human being. Why else did the wise men fall down and worship him? This baby was also God. He was Jehovah's salvation, Emmanuel, God with us. He was God come in the flesh. Yes, Jesus was a baby born of Mary, truly her son, and yet at the same time, the son of God. This evening, we want to take some time to consider further who these wise men were and how it is that they came to seek the Messiah and second, why they rejoice with this exceedingly great joy. <clears throat> so who they were and how they came to seek the Messiah is our first point. So sometime after Jesus' birth in Bethlehem, perhaps even two years later, the Bible tells us that some visitors came into Jerusalem from the east. These were wise men or 
magi as they are also called. They came into Jerusalem saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. The verb there at the beginning of verse 2 that is translated saying, they came into Jerusalem saying, that is a verb of continual action. They were apparently going throughout Jerusalem asking whomever they met, where is the king? The impression is that these wise men figured that the birth of this king was so important that surely it was public knowledge where he was. But as they discovered soon enough, no one knew anything of his existence, and so they kept asking. In fact, they kept asking to such a great extent and and, and throughout Jerusalem to the degree that it was common knowledge in Jerusalem that the wise men were there seeking the king of the Jews. We know that pretty much the whole city knew about this inquiry because eventually the news got to Herod about these men and their question. And all Jerusalem, we are told, was troubled. They were troubled because they knew Herod was a paranoid man about any threat to his throne. They knew he was a man who was ready to cruelly defend his honor. So we know that these men came to Jerusalem looking for the king of the Jews, but who were they? What is their relationship to this star that led them to Jerusalem? Let me say from the beginning that there are many questions about these men, and we need to be careful to separate fact from fiction and as well as fact from speculation. First of all, we don't know how many of them there were. Just because they present three gifts does not mean necessarily that there were three of them. There may have been. We know that there were at least two of them because it's plural, but we have no idea of the exact number. Second, there is the song, We Three Kings of Orient Are, but the best evidence is that these men were not actually kings, though, as we will see in a moment, they were closely associated with royalty. And third, we don't know the identity of the eastern country from which they came. We are told they came from the east, a a word that literally means from the rising of the sun. They were from a country east of Palestine, uh, but we do not know exactly which country. We are not told explicitly how far away they came, from how far away they came. But uh, as we again will see in a moment, uh, there is a pretty good idea of what country they came from. We also know that they saw not just a star, but his star in the east. And that in seeing it, they knew that it was his, a star that told of his birth. How they knew this, we do not know. What the star actually looked like, we don't know. There's speculation that it was basically a normal star, but one that stood out as particularly brilliant at that that time, and that appeared suddenly out of nowhere. Others say that the star was a, actually a comet. Others, the planet Jupiter, which is often associated with the birth of kings for some reason. Others, that the star was a rare conjunction of Saturn and Jupiter. Others, that it was a low-hanging meteor. Just the fact that they're all of these different theories prove to us that there is a lack of certainty. I believe that the best approach is to let the text speak for itself. This word star in the Greek can really mean any great brilliance or radiance. Uh, The word itself allows for the Messiah star to be um, something other than a normal star. In fact, actually, the narrative indicates that this star was not normal. Uh, What the text leads us 
In fact, away from is the idea that this star was some kind of natural phenomenon that the wise men interpreted in their own way. No, this star was something extraordinary. The evidence is that they saw it for the first time while they were in the east, but then it disappeared. According to verse 9, when they are in Jerusalem, they once again see the star that they had seen, past tense. The order of events may have been something like this. They saw a star that told them of Christ's birth, and so they headed west toward Palestine. Having arrived in Palestine, they went to the capital city of Jerusalem and began their inquiry for the Christ child. And after being told he is in Bethlehem, according to prophecy, they see the star again. But this time, we are told, it went before them. The star actually led them. It led them to the very house where the child was resting. This is no ordinary star. No star that we see in the distant sky could be described as behaving in this manner. What they saw was a radiating light, a brilliance that hovered and that moved. And that was so low in the sky that it could rest above a single house. And in that way, let them know that the Christ was in that particular house. So how did these wise men come to understand that this star spoke of the Messiah? And why were they looking for him? Why did they go to Palestine to look for him? It's clear that they had been exposed to the teachings of the Jews. Apparently, somehow, somebody had told them of the coming Messiah. As people of faith, they were looking for his coming. They were convinced that the sign of his coming would be a star. Now, we wonder if they were familiar with the prophecy of Balaam in Numbers chapter 24, verse 17. There we read, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. The idea of a scepter points to a coming king. Perhaps the wise men in their study of the heavens saw this spectacular, extraordinary sky, a star in the sky toward the direction of Israel, and they put two and two together. A star shall come out of Jacob. The scepter shall rise out of Israel. That they would be studying the heavens is something that we know to be the practice of such wise men from the east. This is one thing we do know about them with certainty. And when we understand this about them and understand that they were familiar with the Jewish scriptures and the prediction of the coming Messiah, this would indicate to us that they were from Babylon. For We know that in Babylon, the study of the stars was carried out quite vigorously. It was also known of Babylon that they had wise men they, they, that was a term familiar to the Babylonians. Daniel of the Old Testament became one of these. We read in Daniel 2, verse 48, Then the king gave Daniel high honors and many gifts and made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. And later in chapter 5, verse 11, we are told that Daniel was made chief of the magicians, enchanters, Chaldeans and astrologers, which tells us that the religion of the occult was associated with these Babylonian wise men, which is why they are sometimes called magi, from the word for magic or magician. They, they were wise men that didn't just study the stars as astronomers, but as astrologers, but not necessarily. Daniel, as a man of God, as a man of faith, certainly was not involved in these things, even though 
He belonged to the wise men. He was a wise man only in the sense that he was educated in science and agriculture and mathematics and history like the best of them. And it was because of his extensive knowledge and wisdom that he was given great political power. So we would surmise that these magi, these wise men of the Christmas story must have been like Daniel. Apparently through the gospel witness of Daniel and others like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, the gospel of the coming Messiah, of the coming Christ was spread in the pagan land of Babylon. And when we know how the Holy Spirit works through the witness of his people, it's not surprising that there would be among the wise men of Babylon those who had true faith in the coming Christ. And consequently, when God sent the Messiah star that communicated to these students of the star that the Christ had come, they headed toward Palestine, knowing that he had been born king of the Jews. As men of faith, they knew they needed this child. They longed to see him. They longed to worship him. Before we consider more specifically why these men rejoiced at Jesus' coming, let's consider for a moment those who didn't rejoice. There were others right there in Jerusalem who either didn't care about his coming or actually hated his coming. When King Herod heard about the arrival of these men from the east, now they were looking for the king of the Jews. The text says he was troubled. Literally, he was stirred up. He was agitated. The the verb in the Greek refers to even shaking. You're so stirred up. And we understand this to be concern over the stability of his reign. Herod was a very paranoid man when it came to challenges to his throne. And all Jerusalem was also agitated along with him because of what Herod's agitation was probably going to mean for them. For you understand, they already knew something of the violent nature of Herod and figured that if he unleashed his anger against this new king, there was probably going to be collateral damage. Upon hearing about this king that had been born, Herod asked the chief priests and scribes where the Christ was to be born. They summarized Micah 5.2, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. So now King Herod knows the place of this king's birth, and then his attention turns toward determining when he was born. So he asks the wise men when they first saw the star, probably figuring the star appeared at the moment of his birth. And from this information, he would be able to figure out the child's age. Herod then pretended to be interested in worshiping this child, but we know he was in fact an instrument of Satan who wanted the Christ killed. Not much later, he had all of the male children two years and younger killed in Bethlehem, figuring that in this general massacre, the king of the Jews would be killed. Meanwhile, the wise men, now armed with new information and unaware of Herod's scheming, continued on their journey. It was then that the star appeared and led them from Jerusalem to Bethlehem, even to the exact house where Jesus was. And then we are told in Scripture with special emphasis that when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Why? Well, they rejoiced because they knew their long search was not in vain. They knew that they were mere moments now from seeing the king. Their joy was filled to overflowing as the star stopped over a house, the house where the king they sought lived. 
Their longing that had only increased over the time and distance of their long journey was now to be fulfilled. We're told next in verse 11, and going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother. And their joy came to expression in the giving of gifts of worship. Verse 11 explains, and they fell down and worshiped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts. Worship is offered to God. When they come into the house, what catches their attention is the child Jesus. And it's striking that their response to seeing a child is worship. Can you picture the scene? Can you feel the drama created by this unexpected event? A simple child is there with his mother. Here are these visitors, these wise men from another land who, though not kings, They were influential, they were wealthy, they were educated men who moved among kings. They advised kings, they were with kings. And these men are falling down and worshiping Mary's child. This is because they know he is king, the king of kings and lord of lords, the hope of God's people, their ruler, their shepherd, their God. Notice the gifts they offer. These gifts are significant from several points of view. First of all, these gifts are expressions of sincere devotion and worship. For these are expensive gifts. These are the best of the things the world has to offer. These are not just chintzy tokens of devotion. No, these are fantastic gifts of value. And second, these gifts indicate that these men knew that Jesus was more than a mere human child. Children receive toys as gifts. Jesus received gifts that were meant to honor him. These were expensive gifts given in worship. And third, these gifts were individually very appropriate gifts for Jesus, regardless of whether the wise men understood the full implications. These gifts were in many ways fitting, fitting with who Jesus was and what he had come to do as the Savior of sinners. So let's take a moment to consider these gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. The first gift being gold. Gold is the most precious of metals and the universal symbol of material value and wealth. It's often associated with royalty. In the Old Testament, Joseph was given a gold neck chain as a way of marking him as the second in command of the kingdom. Daniel was promised by Belshazzar clothing of purple and a chain of gold as the third ruler in the kingdom. King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon has this, this vision where he, where he sees this image, this great image, and the gold head of that image, in fact, represented his kingdom, the kingdom of Babylon. Solomon's kingdom, considered the greatest kingdom of Israel in terms of wealth and prestige, was known for its abundance of gold. And don't forget that Solomon's prosperity was a picture, a type of the spiritual prosperity of Christ's kingdom. Revelation 21 has John's vision of the new Jerusalem of Christ's heavenly kingdom as this city of pure gold. Even the streets are made of pure gold. As we think of then gold in connection to royalty and to the glories of Christ's kingdom, we remember that Jesus came as the royal son of David. And as the ascended Christ, he is king of kings and lord of lords. He has never been the glorious king of an earthly kingdom, but he is the king of the kingdom of his church. And one day at his coming, the kingdoms of this world, 
no matter how powerful they are, will be destroyed. And he will be revealed as the king of the new heavens and new earth. So that's gold. And then the wise men also gave the young Jesus frankincense. Frankincense, this costly, this beautiful smelling incense that for the Jews was used only in the temple of worship. It was, it was stored, in fact, in a special chamber in the sanctuary. It, it was regulated by the law of God. Exodus 30, verse 34 states specifically that incense was not for the people. It was not for a common use, but was only for Jehovah. It's mentioned in scripture, always had to do with the worship of God. And burning incense, burning coals were taken from the altar of burnt offering and placed on the altar of incense, that golden altar that stood in the holy place in front of the Holy of Holies. On these coals, the incense was sprinkled, and this resulting uh, fragrant smoke rising heavenward was a symbol of the prayers of God's people, a pleasant aroma to God. The golden altar of incense reminds us that gold was, to go back to, the, to gold, was also used generally throughout the temple, adding to the splendor of the Lord's house as this place that highlighted the, the glory of our God of grace, the God who would save his people from their sins by sending us a child, his son, to be our atoning sacrifice. In God's plan, the gift of frankincense was given to Jesus, even though in that Old Testament age, the law said that it was to be used only in connection with the worship of God. In Scripture, God specifically says that incense is his incense. And in giving Jesus incense, the wise men were testifying to the fact that Jesus is God in the flesh. And these wise men worshipped the child Jesus which is evidence enough that they knew he was God. It was also appropriate that Jesus received myrrh. Myrrh was a perfume, not as valuable as frankincense, but quite valuable nonetheless. It was derived from a small desert tree, the balsamodendron tree of Arabia. It was used to perfume beds and garments. Women would wear it as perfume. It was used lavishly in bridal processions. And mixed with wine, it was medicinal as an anesthetic and most significant of all when as we think of Jesus being given this gift it was used for preparing bodies for burial myrrh certainly brings to mind Jesus death on the cross remember that while on the cross he was offered wine mixed with myrrh and remember his response as he was offered that he refused to take it and we believe that this is because he knew it would act as an anesthetic and dull his pain. And since he was determined to satisfy the full justice of God against our sins by his suffering and death on the cross, he was determined to do nothing to lessen the pain. This refusal to take wine mixed with myrrh was then part of his obedience to his father who had appointed him, who had anointed him to pay the price of our redemption and so we understand this refusal to take myrrh was part of his resolute love for you. He was not thinking of himself. He was not thinking about what he was going through, but was thinking of your salvation. And as such, was unwilling to back down from all of the suffering that was required. And then later, after Jesus died and was buried, Nicodemus brought myrrh. John 19, verse 39, it says in Nicodemus, 
who at first came to Jesus by night, also came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about a hundred pounds. And then the women that came to the tomb on Easter morning came exactly to bring more of this mixture to put around Jesus' dead body. So this gift of myrrh certainly brings to mind that well-known adage that Jesus was born to die. So not only was Jesus God, king of an eternal kingdom, remember the gold, and God himself, remember the frankincense, but he was, as the myrrh reminds us, also a man who could and eventually did die. Ironically, it was by means of his death that he was able to save us by taking upon himself the sentence of death that we deserved for our sins. He is not only our king, again, think of the gold, but also our priest, think of the frankincense of the temple. And as our priest, he offered himself as an atoning sacrifice to pay the penalty of our sin to the justice of God. His death then became the backdrop to prove his divinity by raising himself from the dead and ascending into heaven where he now rules over the church that he redeemed. Origen, one of the early church fathers, he summarized these gifts brought to Jesus by saying the Magi brought, quote, gold as to a king, myrrh as to one who was mortal, and incense as to God. And when we understand that our Savior from sin must be both God and man, we see how these gifts point to Jesus as meeting the qualifications to be our Savior. He must be one of us. He must be a human being who can die in order to represent us before the justice of God. And yet he must also be God. He must be sinless. He must be powerful enough to to sustain his human nature under the infinite wrath of God. He must be able to raise himself from the dead in victory. And as we think of what Jesus came to do and why he was born, we should be struck with the wonder of why would God come to us in his son? Why would God send his son into this sin-cursed world to suffer and die? Why would God have his son come in the way that he did in such humiliation and poverty? In fact, why was his life really one episode of suffering after another? And Jesus himself has told us the answer to these questions when he has told us that he came to save sinners. Philippians 2, verses 7 and 8 summarizes Jesus' life in this way. He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That is why we rejoice. That is why the wise men at finding the Christ child rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. They understood Jesus' coming is our salvation. We have the same reasons for joy because now that Jesus has come, we have a Savior. You have a Savior that you can trust to save you from your sins. Is your heart filled with joy this Christmas season? I'm not talking about the worldly joy of presence and Warm family gatherings, as pleasant as these things are, as good gifts from God. I'm not talking about that. The things worthy of exceedingly great joy is that thing is knowing Christ as Savior. That's the joy I'm referring to, and a joy that comes only in the way of acknowledging that you are a sinner in need of salvation. 
the salvation that Jesus came to give. Isaiah 25.9 summarizes well the joy that we feel this time of year concerning Jesus the Christ child. Hear these words. Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. Amen. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for sending your son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We have waited for him. Your people waited for him in the Old Testament. We now wait for him to come again, that you might save us. Lord, we thank you for the salvation that Christ earned through his death on the cross. We thank you that as a man, as a human child that grew into a man, a human being like us, he can represent us. And we thank you, Father, that as God, he is able to do all that is necessary to save us. Father, we thank you for how your people waited and you came. And we rejoice. We are glad. and We rejoice in your salvation. The salvation that you have provided for us, a salvation that we have not earned, a salvation that we do not uh, deserve, a salvation that is totally of your grace, that all we can do is but receive it and praise you for it. Father, we worship you. Uh, We thank you for uh, our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.